0: All right, as we come to our text for today, we are in Revelation chapter 1 as we saw a moment ago, and we come to a, a witnessing or a vision of the resurrected Christ in glory. In this apocalypse, there are some themes that we've been seeing, if you will, in the books we've been in recently. It wasn't really planned out, but if you think about the books we've been in, Matthew's gospel, which is preparing the disciples for the persecution that will come. Over and again, that is the the warning and message given to those uh, who follow Christ, that persecution is something that will come upon the people of God and to prepare for it. And He gives them much in the way of preparation for that. And then we looked at 1 Thessalonians, and we saw people there who were suffering encountering persecution and dealing with much tribulation and difficulty, and we spoke about that. And then we went right into Hebrews, and Hebrews is all about the people of God encountering persecution and how they react to it. Well, it wouldn't really surprise us that we could turn almost anywhere in the New Testament and encounter this theme, because the church was really birthed into an environment of persecution. And so we're going to find it again as John is thinking of these churches, he himself imprisoned, and so I want us to read the text one more time, and then we're going to get looking at it quickly today. So beginning again at verse 9, I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet, saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to his feet, and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow. And his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass as if refined in a furnace. And his voice as the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. And his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand upon me saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. Write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after this. The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. As we look at this text today, I want us to look at three points. First of all, the situation in the church. Second of all, the description of our Lord. And third, the comfort of Christ. So beginning first with the situation in the church, again, as we think about Revelation and the situation that it's written in, It's written by John. He identifies himself right out of the gate, doesn't he? That this is John. In verse 9, I, John, am writing this. And it's important again to think about the persecution that forms the background of this letter because the church is being persecuted. It was persecuted all along. That's kind of what we want to remember as we're walking through all these New Testament letters that the church really was always persecuted from its earliest days. And uh, it may have started as Uh, some persecution at the hands of the synagogue it began there but it didn't stay there did it it began to be um, the pagans if you will that began to persecute the church it would be the the tradesmen who didn't like their income being lost as more and more people turned away from the ways of the city and turned toward Christ so they weren't selling their idols any longer and the smiths were not happy about it They said we That's how we make our living. And now these Christians are are meddling and causing problems in our city and turning the hearts of the men and women away from the gods of our cities and to this Christ who they proclaim. And so again, there was problems there uh, with the the pagan tradesmen and also with the temples. Uh, They weren't happy either at the turning away from paganism that they would see as God brought the gospel into their communities, into their cities and towns. But again, it didn't stay there. It eventually got to the point where the Roman Empire itself was persecuting the church. Now we know that began off and on in in fits and starts, but it really picked up in the 60s under Nero. And if you know something of history, it's an interesting little thing that happened. Um, But Rome burned, right? We all know the story. And they say, and Nero fiddled as the city burned. And of course, that's probably apocryphal. In fact, it appears that Nero wasn't even in Rome when it burned. But it created a problem for Nero because he had been pushing to tear down the center of Rome and rebuild it in a more glorious form. And so people began to say, Aha, Nero burnt the city down so he could rebuild it. And Nero, needing a scapegoat, said, Don't these Christians speak of the judgment of God and judgment coming by fire? And they said, Yes. and They said, Let's blame them. Let's blame the Christians. They burnt the city down so they could claim God judged Rome. And that, of course, created a a period of persecution that was intense. Peter, Paul, a number of the apostles died during that period uh, and in Rome. But it wasn't the last period of persecution. There were many periods of persecution. One came a little bit later in the 90s under an emperor named Domitian. And Domitian was the emperor that likely the church fathers tell us uh, was in power when John wrote the Revelation. John was arrested and taken to the Isle of Patmos. Patmos was an island for political prisoners or just troublemakers who you didn't really have enough on to execute legally. So you just exile them to Patmos to this island, which is a beautiful island, uh, but one you couldn't get off of. It's kind of like Alcatraz in that sense. Once you were there, you were there. You were locked away. And so John Stuck on the Isle of Patmos, tells us that he's there and that he reminds the church that the tribulations that they're going through, he shares with them. Just because I'm on the Isle of Patmos doesn't mean I'm separated from what's going on in the churches. John says, I'm here because of what's going on in the churches. I'm here because of the tribulation. In fact, he describes himself in this way, doesn't he? That he is both a brother, that is to say, a fellow believer in Jesus Christ one saved by the grace of God, faith in Christ. He's saying, I identify with you all as your brother, but also a companion, a fellow sharer in something. In fact, in three things. Tribulation, this idea of suffering, trial. I share that with you, he says. You're in tribulation in the churches. I'm in tribulation here on this island, locked away, suffering for Christ but also share in the kingdom with you. We're not just sufferers here. We're heirs of a great kingdom of of ruling and reigning. We will be co-heirs with Christ, fellow inheritors of all things. Paul says, all things are yours. And again, John is picturing that and saying, we will share in this kingdom. We are heirs of this kingdom. We are not just lowly prisoners. We are heirs, if you will, with Christ In his kingdom, but I'm also sharing in the patience that is found in Jesus Christ. What does he mean? Steadfastness in suffering? No better model of that than Christ. As we look at what he endured throughout his life to accomplish a purpose, right? For the joy set before him, as the author of Hebrews says it. Well, here John says, I also suffer in the present for a joy set before me. And that is that I one day will be in glory with the Lord Jesus Christ forevermore. In fact, all those things are in Christ. He is a companion in the tribulation in Christ. The the kingdom of Christ, the patience of Christ. I suffer steadfastly with you as kingdom brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus. And then he goes on to explain how he does it doesn't he we already know this but he says i'm on the island of patmos they know exactly what patmos is uh, everybody knew about patmos i gave the example earlier of alcatraz to be very much like that if somebody said oh yeah he's on alcatraz back in the day when alcatraz was a functioning prison you'd go oh i know what that means he's locked away the key thrown away the same thing with john i am on the isle of patmos why for the word of god I wouldn't compromise the word of God and for the testimony of Christ. In other words, the testimony of what Christ has accomplished. This is the same thing in the earliest days of Acts where they said, Quit proclaiming the name of Jesus. And You get the idea that the apostles say, We're trying to be good citizens and and do our part, but you're asking something we cannot do. It is not right to obey you above God. And therefore, we cannot agree to no longer proclaim the name of Jesus Christ. Our whole testimony is wrapped up in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Who I am as a new creation, a new person, is tied up in who Jesus Christ is and what He came and accomplished. There is no way I can stop giving a testimony about Jesus Christ. And I certainly can't compromise the Word of God. It's not my Word to compromise. It is God's everlasting, eternal, and perfect Word. I cannot compromise it. I can't go and say, well, I'll just quit saying that Jesus Christ is Lord because Caesar doesn't like it. I'll no longer uh, say, oh, he's the, the true high priest, that Caesar is, I mean to say, not Jesus, because that's what Caesar would want me to testify to. I won't say Domitian is the savior of the people because that's what Domitian wants us to say. No, I'll say Jesus Christ is the savior. That's what I'm going to continue to proclaim faithfully the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ and whatever it costs me, it costs me. But that's what I'm going to do. And that's what John does. And John says, and that's the reason that I'm where I am. It's the reason Paul would say that I'm in these chains. The same reason John's in this prison on this island. John recognizes it will cost him something to be faithful to Jesus Christ in the days of Domitian. And this is how he will serve and suffer. But notice he wants us to understand also the situation he's in. He says that he's in prison on Patmos, if you will, for this reason, and he's in the Spirit on the Lord's day. Now, I think he's meaning to say he's in worship, but also saying in the Spirit, he means something's happening. An experience that God is giving him is occurring on this Lord's day. Now, we could have a whole other sermon just on the Lord's day, and maybe should at some point. If we were walking through Revelation, we would have a sermon just on that phrase. Because it is important to note that the reason we gather on the first day of the week is because the early church recognized that God had done a miraculous thing on the Lord's Day, and it changed everything. And so the church began to gather on the Lord's Day as if the Christian Sabbath, in a sense, as the opportunity to gather together as the people of God and worship and praise our King And he says, it's on that day, the Lord's day, that I'm in the Spirit worshiping and something happens. I heard behind me a loud voice, a loud voice. Now that would get your attention, especially if you're isolated. And all of a sudden in your praise, in your worship, in this experience that he's having, he hears a voice behind him, which he says is a loud voice and a voice even like a trumpet. And that voice says to him, as we read earlier, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. Speaks of the divinity and eternality of Christ. And what you see, the vision you will be given, write it down. Send it to these seven churches that I'm about to mention. Now, if we were walking through Revelation, these seven churches become very important to us for our purposes today. Note their names. Note that they were all in Asia Minor. Note that they were all in what we call today Turkey. And they were along an ancient postal route, it appears. And so it might be that one courier would take and deliver this message to all these churches. But these churches, it's not a coincidence that there's seven of them. And seven is such a significant biblical number of completion. And most scholars tell us this represents the church. The messages to these seven churches are messages to the church. Now, I'm not one who sees different church ages here. But more or less... Situations churches find themselves in constantly, warnings and encouragements to the church throughout time. And so this is given to him on the authority of one who claims to be the first and the last. That's quite a statement. So what does John do? John says, Well, I'm going to turn around and see who this is. I'm going to turn around and see who this is. And in fact, it tells us that in verse 12 and 13, verses 12 and 13, he does this. Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me. And having turned, he saw something. He saw the risen and glorious Christ. And that brings us to our second point today we want to look at, which is John's description of our Lord. What did John see as he turned and saw the Lord? Well, first of all, remember, he immediately heard his voice. And he described it as being loud, as a trumpet. Now, the trumpet is not so much to signify the power of his voice. It is loud. But if you've ever been in a room with a trumpet playing at full volume, it's loud. But the trumpet is to symbolize the clarity of the message of Jesus Christ. You know, you want a clear trumpet call. This is a war picture. The trumpeter would trumpet. And if the trumpet sound is uncertain... What will we do? It's a certain voice. Christ is giving a certain message of comfort to his church and also of judgment. If you want to get the picture of power, you turn to verse 15. And his voice was the sound of many waters, of of much water rushing along. He had a powerful voice, a clear voice. And John hears the call of this voice and recognizes the power. But he says that calls him to turn around. And as he turns around, he sees one. But but notice even before he sees the one, he sees that he's in the midst of seven lampstands. Seven golden lampstands. Now, if we were to turn to verse twenty, I notice on the bulletin I put verse nineteen, should have put verse twenty. Verse twenty is what we need to have the key to understanding that picture. These lampstands represent the seven churches to whom he's sending these letters. And notice that Jesus stands in the midst of His churches. He's standing in the midst of His churches. He watches over them. He is amongst His church. He judges His church. He blesses His church. He protects His church. This is a message to these recipients. Jesus is not far from you. Even in your moment of trial, He is there near you, close to you. It's an important message to a suffering church. Jesus hasn't forgotten us. He hasn't forgotten us. He hasn't turned His back against or away from us. He hasn't failed to walk with us. He has kept His promise that He would be with us. And He is with us. He is in the midst of our churches. He is watching over us. Nothing can happen to us without His permission. Nothing. The world can't accomplish anything without His permission. In fact, if you notice, the threat to take away their lampstand or to put out their candle is if they fail to obey Him. He's the one who will end that church, this church or that church, not the world. So in the midst of persecution, we do not have to think that things are spiraling out of control. Everything is held in the hands of Jesus. He is watching over His churches. He is bringing His plan to its end. He is accomplishing His will, and He is with us. He will not forsake us. And it says here as it continues, he begins now to look upon the one in the midst of these lampstands. And by the way, I think about lampstands as those that hold light. The church pictured now as the ones who bring light forth in a dark world. That's the mission of the church, to to preach the word of God, to stand on the testimony of Jesus Christ, the very thing that John is doing. That's what we do. We bring the, the light of revelation into a dark and dying world. And then he sees one like the Son of Man. That's a reference to Daniel, isn't it? This glorious picture. It was Jesus' favorite title for himself. He used it more than any other title. The Son of Man, he would say over and again. And they didn't like it because they knew the reference that he was making from Daniel, that this is a glorious one. A glorious one walking amongst the clouds and so forth. He is one who has power and authority and glory, and they knew it, and they didn't like it. And yet John says, this is who it is, one like the Son of Man. And he's clothed with a garment down to his feet, girded about the chest with a golden band. Again, a reference to, uh, to Daniel's prophecies. But what's interesting about this is this, this long robe is a poderes. That's the, the word in Greek. It's the word used over and over again in the Septuagint, uh, in Greek in the Septuagint, for a priestly robe. A priestly robe. Some people say, well, the only place that you get a picture of the priesthood of Christ is Hebrews. I think John's giving you one here. This is our high priest. This is the one who intercedes on our behalf. This is the one who is interceding, if you will, on our behalf before a holy and righteous God. He himself being holy and righteous. His head and hair, white like wool, symbolizes perfect omniscience, perfect wisdom, perfect purity. This is Christ, perfectly pure, righteous, all-knowing, His eyes like a flame of fire, judging, discerning, seeing all, seeing all. My friends, these are terms that we would say of God, right? John's in no problem saying Jesus Christ is God. He is the second person of the Holy Trinity. He recognizes that. So all these things speak to that. His perfect omniscience, his perfect purity and holiness, his righteousness, his eyes all seeing, and his feet like fine brass as if refined in a furnace. Perfectly pure, right? Not, not a, a sort of pure brass. This is perfectly pure. Again, holiness. He is holy. He is pure. And his feet symbolize judgment. He walks amongst his churches. Yes, he judges the world, but he also judges his church. you don't believe that when you go home this afternoon read those letters there are some serious warnings and threats given to the church in those letters so again all this speaks of the glory majesty power and authority of christ his voice as we said a moment ago like many rushing waters and notice this in his right hand a hand of authority if you will he holds what seven stars verse 20 tells us just as it interprets the lampstands it interprets the stars these are the messengers of the churches. Now there's some debate because of that word. Is it angels? Uh, is it the pastors of the church? But in regard to the church, the message of Christ is upheld in His hand. I tend to think it's His representatives in the churches. But He's saying He upholds them. They are upheld by His power. Again, if you worry, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? It's in the Lord's hands. He is holding These messengers, they are his messengers. If we were to continue on, it says, out of his mouth, a sharp two-edged sword. We don't have to wonder about that reference. We've been in Hebrews, haven't we? The word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. Out of the, the mouth of Christ comes the word of God, an authoritative word. We can... Get that from the Sermon on the Mount where they marveled at his authority. He was not like the scribes. He was not like the Pharisees. He was not just repeating what others had taught him. He spoke with his own authority. Jesus spoke as if he was the authority. And the reason is because he's speaking the word of God and is the word of God. And you see it there. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. Now think about that. In its full strength, in its vigor, the sun shining so brightly, that's what it was like to be in the presence of Christ. To be in the presence of Christ. What is this picture? His radiance. The radiance that he brings forth that in Hebrews it talks about that he shares or brings forth of the Father, this glorious radiance and holiness. And John beholds all of this. No wonder this is going to have an effect on him to behold all of this. Well, what happens? What happens? Look at verse 17. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. Now this is no acting out on John's part. This is no, oh, wait a minute. Uh, When Isaiah saw the Lord high and exalted, he said, woe is me. I need to do something to show reverence. No, John is driven to the ground as a dead man. He falls to the feet of Jesus. He falls there because he's in the presence of perfect glory and holiness and power and authority and dominion. All these things. He's in the presence of glory. How can he stand? He falls down as one dead. Now, my friends, that's what it is to stand in glory and holiness in the presence of perfect holiness and glory, perfect righteousness. He falls at his feet. It's a fearful thing to stand before a holy and righteous God. In fact, all of Scripture tells us that there is no comfort for us in God's holiness. In fact, I think it was J.I. Packer who said, The most frightful truth in all the universe is this, that God is holy. And the reason it's frightful is because we are not. We are not. And for us to stand before a holy and righteous God would mean our doom, our end. And you see something of that in John for a moment as he sees this perfect holiness and righteousness and he falls to his feet as if a dead man. But that's not the end of the story, is it? Because it says that he, meaning Jesus, laid his right hand on me. That same hand that upholds the churches, upholds the, the messengers of the churches, now will uphold John. In John's moment of, of of trial and John's moment of weakness and John's being as if a dead man it's that right hand of Jesus that upholds the messengers of the churches that will now touch him and he says do not be afraid now this is a message we hear over and over again isn't it in the gospels and in fact all of scripture it's a frightful thing to be in the presence of an angel in scripture isn't it because always the angel has to start do not be afraid be not afraid do not fear because if the angel didn't say that we would be terrified we would be terrified and if that's true what's it like to stand in the presence of christ the risen christ and so again he says do not be afraid and repeats what he said earlier i am the first and the last make no mistake about who jesus claims to be he claims divinity for himself people say nowhere in the bible does he claim to be god Well, what does it mean to say you're first and last? What does it mean to say, I am the beginning of all things and the end of all things? What does that even mean? If not, I am God. So again, there are plenty of times that that the opponents of Jesus understood what he was saying. Before Abraham was, I am, and they sought to stone him. Again, the claims are clear. And so here's a moment where John needs comforting. John is on the ground as if a dead man, and Jesus lays his right hand upon him and says this, but what is it that's going to bring comfort to John in this moment? Look at verse 18. He says, I am he who lives. It's important to recognize we don't worship a dead Savior. We don't worship a dead Lord. We don't worship a dead person. We worship a living Christ, a living God. Paul makes that clear in 1 Corinthians 15. If Jesus did not rise, we will not rise. Our hope is in vain. Go about living however you want to live then. Because all this would be a fiction. All of it. And there would be no hope for any of us in it if Christ did not rise. But Christ proclaims Himself, I am He who lives. But make no mistake about it. He is the one who died. He says that. And was dead. He went to Calvary's cross. He died for sinners. That's what Paul said. Jesus Christ came into the world. He died for sinners. Of whom Paul was chief. Of whom I am chief. Perhaps you are chief. We can have a debate about that. But the truth is Christ died to free us from the bounds and the chains of, of death and sin. But notice this. He lives... He was dead, and behold, he is alive. I am alive, he says. And not just alive, but alive forevermore. Amen, he says. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. Oh, I don't have time to exposit uh, the interesting things of that. Let's just say this to begin with, that he's speaking of having authority. Having keys means you have ownership of something, doesn't it? If I have the keys to a car and I'm rightfully in possession of them it's probably my car if i have the keys to my house it symbolizes my ownership of the house if uh if you have keys they symbolize having authority and he says i have the keys of hades and of death we did a a series through the apostles creed online blog post last summer Uh, there's one that's interesting because the apostles creed speaks about about Christ in this way. You can go back and read that if you want and see how the early church interpreted this, that Christ went into the grave, went to the dead, conquered, if you will, Satan, took the keys of death and Hades, and now it has no power to hold, no power to maintain or grip us because Christ has ownership over death and hell. And then, of course, there's the, the call to write these things. But I want you to think about this for a moment. Because it's important. Why would that message be a comfort? Well, we've got a couple of levels here that it's going to be important. The first is this. John doesn't have to fear being in the presence of Christ. He would have, right, if he weren't redeemed by Christ. But he's saying this. You belong to me. I purchased you. I'm the one who by my death purchased you and in my resurrection has reconciled you to a holy and righteous God. If I were to bend down and pick up this bulletin, it would remind us, wouldn't it, that not only did did he conquer death, but he did it on our behalf that we have a promised resurrection, but that we have that new life even now. John doesn't have to wait to die to be reconciled to a holy and righteous God. He is even then reconciled to a holy and righteous God. This is the doctrine Luther talked about about being simultaneously sinner and just Yes, he's still a human being, but he is reconciled to a holy and righteous God in Christ. Christ bore John's sin upon the cross. And now John stands in the perfect righteousness of Christ before God. And so he has to fear nothing being in the presence. Nothing in the presence of Christ. But there's another important thing that John is telling us. I think Christ is telling us. This is also the reason that the church doesn't have to fear the world. The world doesn't have the last stand, doesn't have the last say. The world will rage, as the Psalms tell us, against the plans of God. But God is supreme, sovereign. He is carrying out His plan to its end. And if you are His, you're going to be fine. doesn't mean we will go through this life unscathed, that we won't face death. Of course we will, unless He returns. But it means, ultimately, He upholds us. We stand in Him. We have a righteousness because of Him. We are His because He lives. And though we will face death in one sense in this life, of course, the second death will never touch us. We will live forevermore with Him because He lives. And that's why 1 Corinthians 15 is so important. Why do some of you say there is no resurrection? If Christ didn't rise, what hope is there for us? We rise because He arose. We partake in His resurrection as we die to our old self as a picture even of His crucifixion. And so again, my friends, all of this is an encouragement to the churches. We have reconciliation to a holy and righteous God. And God has glorious plans. And if you're looking at the current moment, now for them that's the 90s A.D. in the Roman world. But far too many Christians are too pessimistic about the world we live in. They look around and they see all kinds of problems, and believe me, there are plenty. Turn on the news, watch it for 30 minutes, I guarantee you'll be depressed. But the truth is, John would remind us throughout this letter, set your eyes on the end. Set your eyes on what God is accomplishing, on what He is doing. In Pilgrim's Progress this last week, Um, we saw the picture of little faith. And little faith was one who had faith, very little faith. He had lost much in his walk with Christ, lost much earthly possession. And that's all he could see. And so he was down all the time. Oh, I've lost the money that I had. And if he wanted to be big faith, the book tells us, he needed to look past what he'd lost to what he'd gained in Christ. We said it'd be like the man who stumbled upon a treasure in a field, sold everything he could to buy that field, to inherit that treasure, which was greater than what he sold to buy it. And what Jesus is telling us there in the 13th chapter of Matthew is, it's not a sacrifice to be a Christian. Whatever you give up it's paid back multifold in what you receive. You give up maybe temporal blessings, temporal wealth in this world, and you receive back eternal inheritance of all things with Christ forevermore. That's not a bad trade, <laughs> right? But little faith couldn't see it. Little faith, even though he believed in Christ, he couldn't get past what he had temporally lost. Big faith would say, I've lost some things. So what? So what? I'm with Christ. I think in a very similar way, that's what John is being told here. Focus on, I don't just mean here, I mean throughout this entire letter focus on the big picture, what God is doing, and you will see that the story doesn't end with the world rampaging. The story ends with the new Jerusalem and with the people of God reunited and perfectly reconciled, not just spiritually, but even physically in the presence of God forevermore. So if you focus on that, and we look at the trials that we go through as temporary bumps on the road, then we'll be more like Christian in the Pilgrim's progress who goes you know what i'm fell into a slough of despond and i've been beat up and i've had some missteps along the way but i'm going to the celestial city of god what are these little bumps and bruises what are these little problems along the way compared to that glory i think most of the new testament is trying to remind us of that set your eyes upon what god is doing set your eyes upon the glories that we'll receive Set your eyes upon the one in whom we stand, on Jesus Christ, the risen Lord, the King of kings. Don't worry so much about the fake King of kings, Domitian, or Nero, or whomever that would be in our own day. Instead, set your eyes upon the true King of kings, because God is reconciling all things to Himself. And at the end of the story, He will stand victorious. And if you're in Christ, you'll stand with Him.